What is going on, New Vision family? My name is Nick, and I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at New Vision, and you guys are in for a treat today. Not only is Pastor Ben a strategic partner, but we call him an extended family member. You're going to enjoy hearing from him, hearing how God is using him, and also just hearing a word from God from a trusted voice. And so buckle up, get ready, and let's give a warm New Vision welcome to Pastor Ben from Hope Church Salt. Lake City, Utah. Golly, guys, thanks very much for having me. My name is Ben, Salt Lake City, like Nick said, and I'm very excited to be here like you. Uh, I'm a little confused on why I'm allowed to be here, to be talking to you, to welcome in our campus at Buchanan, uh, to, to say hello to all of our friends online. I'm having to remember to do that. Uh, generally, at our church in Salt Lake City, we don't have to welcome in any campuses. Uh, uh, this is not my normal thing, but I'm thrilled to be here. I walked through uh, your beautiful building. I've gotten to meet so many of your leaders, humble, uh, capable individuals. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it really is confusing uh, why I got invited. Uh, I feel a lot like an outside dog that you've let inside. Uh, I'm a church planner, you know, I'm like the outside dog that's happy and dirty and kind of shaggy. Uh, and if you let him inside, he will love it. Uh, but something will break. You're going to break something today. And yet, uh, you, you have me anyway. So thank you. As we talk about Hebrews 10, as I'm studying through Hebrews 10, trying to get here and figure out how uh, to, to understand that passage well and apply it to my life, so I'm ready to talk about it. I'm seeing the kinds of overlap that I've seen on mission in Salt Lake City. If you've ever been to Salt Lake City, it's a place that's beautiful. The natural beauty is absolutely gorgeous, and yet it's a city that was founded by and is still to a large degree kind of led by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And that crowd of people believe and act in a way that in some ways, and we've been there about seven years, is, is kind of similar, honestly, to what I grew up with. I, I was actually raised in, in Hendersonville, so just north of town. And I kind of get it. I get the South. And as I get into Salt Lake City, there's there's honestly, there's quite a bit of overlap, not in the theology, but in the way that theology kind of gets worked out among people, real people. See, in our city, that religion is, has become like a vice, and you put people in it and you turn that vice, and that pressure will either solidify and harden somebody down to a Pharisee? Somebody who's self-righteous? Somebody who believes that they're able to handle that pressure? Or that vice will pop people out and they'll go into just saying like, I, I can't handle that, I can't keep up with that, I can't achieve that standard, so I'm gonna just have to try and define myself, find my identity and find my satisfaction in something outside of that ladder. Now I'm gonna just take a second to ask you if that doesn't sound a little bit familiar if the expectations that we might have grown up under in the South have, have not at least tempted you, if you can't be good to look good. 
And, and if you can't even look good to get out of here and just go find something else that might work. When Jesus was preaching 2,000 years ago, a lot of his messages tend to be focused on the Pharisees or the tax collectors. There's nothing new here. And honestly, we can kind of look down or kick the people that I get to minister to in Utah because of their theology. But honestly, we're, we're living in something very similar. And Hebrews, especially Hebrews 10, presents the gospel answer that I think we need. So let's dig in together. Before we do, uh, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father. Well, they say three services or four, including Thursday. But then you actually do that many, Lord, and um, I'm convicted to ask again for that manna. You don't teach us to be self-sufficient. You teach us the joy of being dependent on you. And this morning, we depend on you to work again. Lord, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened again. So many of these people are aware of truth, and they know truth in their head, and yet, Lord, we need to be reminded weekly, daily, hourly of the magnitude of that truth so that it changes us. Lord, will you please do that this morning in your word. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Hebrews 10, the first four verses say this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by those same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You've been learning about this in the book of Hebrews, and you've seen how that Old Testament law is reflected in the sacrifice of Christ, that what they were doing was sort of preparing us for what Christ would do. And so the Hebrews writer here is saying it's almost like a shadow. Now, if you think of a shadow, you think of a thing that's cast by an individual. So it shows you something of the shape of the individual. Paul picks up on the same analogy. He says in Colossians 2, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Hebrews is constantly doing that. It's saying, here's what was, but here's how Christ fulfills that. Here's the shape and the shadow, but then you turn and you see the substance. You see the face of the individual casting the shadow. Now, that can be a wonderful thing. I'm tempted to, to draw you into that and sort of just say, isn't that good, church, to be in the shadow of the Lord? And everybody goes, yeah. And it is true. I mean, it says it in Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's right. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's true. And I pray that God makes that even more real to my heart. But while it is good to be in his shadow, it's only good to be in his shadow with the gospel. Ask the question, is it really good to be in his shadow? Couldn't it also be 
terrifying to look. Do you imagine just sitting, eating, or whatever, and you see this giant shadow, and to look and see the face of God? I mean, here it's talking about a little birdie that's looking up and seeing a mama birdie. Well, a mama bird is friendly to a baby bird. I don't know how it communicates. They can't smile, but they just kind of, you know, regurgitate worms or whatever. And the baby bird's happy for the shadow of the mama bird. But what if that shadow, what if you're a spider and you're crawling through my kitchen and the beautiful, beautiful shadow of my wife is over you and you look up? You're not going to see a smile. (laughs) It would be a gorgeous smile, but you will see a frowning, fearful face with a shoe. Is it good to be under that shadow? See, in Salt Lake City, we're very aware of what that feels like to have the presence of God as a fearful thing. And it's not always bad. When I was 13, I came to Christ because as the man was preaching, he was actually preaching out of Ezekiel to a summer camp. So <laughs> he was a pretty impressive like, ability to connect with the audience. But he was preaching out of Ezekiel, and that was the first time I really realized that my sin was serious. That the lying and the lust and the disobedience. It wasn't just sort of the rambunctious thing that a kid does, and you sort of wink and sweep it under the rug. I was being caught having disobeyed a holy God. Do you know what it's like to be caught? I still have that sense memory. For a lot of people, their salvation takes place over a period of years. There's not this big emotional watershed moment, but for me, there was. You can imagine in your head, you've seen it on film, and and I hope not in your real life, but what it's like to be a lady or a guy, and you kind of have this flirtatious relationship with somebody, and then you come to yourself and you realize it's no longer a temptation you've been playing with. It's a sin you've done. And now all that's left is the label and the consequences. Have you felt that? It may not be this wonderful blessing to look into that face. See, in the uh, Salt Lake, in the LDS religion, they have a very serious set of things they need to do. You're on a schedule from birth if you're part of that church. When you're eight years old, it's time to be baptized. Parents know when their kid is seven turning eight, okay, they're eight years old, we got a year to get this baptism done. And they'll go talk to the bishop and figure out what they need to do to get that kid to the point where he or she is ready to be baptized. And then you're going. By 10, if you're a little boy, you need to be a deacon. They have a different kind of meaning for that in their church, but you have to be a deacon. And then soon after that, you need to be in the priesthood and then another layer of the priesthood. You're on a track and you're either achieving those milestones or you are not. Now, that may sound foreign to some people, but I don't think it sounds too foreign to people in the South. Do you know what it's like to be raised in a church and have people's idea of what you should be very clearly communicated to you? What do you do? You either actually do it, best case scenario, or you look like you actually do it. That fishbowl doesn't create a lot of health. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I was a little bit glad to take my wife and kids out of the South. 
Now, I know you would never do this at New Vision, but there are places where they put a certain expectation on the pastor's family that goes beyond what they would expect out of other Christians. Again, (laughs) not here. But at other places in the South, they actually do do that. We kind of write our own sort of definitions out in Salt Lake. There's not this big tradition sort of hanging around with us, which has negatives, but implies positives. But I think you understand that that tradition or that opinion, that perspective, that fishbowl life creates tension, creates pressure, and you got to do something with it. There's two guys I want to tell you about at Hope that kind of represent what I think are the two broad categories people sort of land in when they're in that vice and under that pressure. And I've changed their names so that, you know, if you meet them, you won't be like, oh, yeah, I know your soul. I know exactly who you are. Your pastor told us everything. So I've changed their names, and I get to pick the names. So it's Mo and Curly. Mo... Mo, much like the Stooges, was the leader. He saw himself as the impressive one, right? Mo actually felt like he was killing it. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. He was impressed with himself. He was definitely sure God was impressed with him. He really didn't think him and God had much more to talk about. When he started to meet us at Hope Church and we started to go through Scripture together, he was pretty sure he was right until he started to meet the real God. And then, and here's the quote from him, he said, the issue with my self-made religion was that I was able to hide from a lot of sin because I made the rules. Do you ever notice how Jesus is constantly confronting the Pharisees with what they think the rules are? Doesn't it seem like Jesus only heals on the Sabbath? Like, I know that he healed other days too, but it seems like there were nights, Friday night, where he would tell some guy, listen, I know that hand's hurting, but if you'll wait till tomorrow... We're going to go down and we're going to heal you there at the synagogue because the Pharisees need to know. He was confronting their concept of the law where they had written all this extra, all this external. They were achieving that, but their hearts were far from God. Again, I know that doesn't happen at New Vision, but there are places in the South where that's a temptation, even with gospel message. That vice turns and you become deluded, proud, and self-righteous. Or that vice turns, the light's on you, and you know you can't do it. So you crack, you pop out, and you have to go and find your identity and your pleasure somewhere else. This guy, Larry, or Curly. Curly, his real name's not Larry either. It's just a constant (laughs) fount of ridiculousness. But Curly, he did flunk Mormonism. He didn't match up. He couldn't climb out. And so for him, he had to go and find something else to make him happy. He couldn't stand in the light. He had to find what he could in the back alleys until, of course, he met grace. But even then, he's constantly tempted by the things that he used to go to. See, you probably met these people too, people who have decided that they're going to run from, hide from, deal with that pressure by some sort of escapism, some sort of destructive practice. And we see it all the time whether it's pornography or drug addiction or some kind of like manic sort of work schedule, fill in the blank. And that person needs to see that the gospel is more satisfying, that Jesus is better. And if they can see that, then they can start to turn and walk as Larry did, uh, Curly did with Christ. But we see it constantly everywhere. We see it in our own hearts. 
As pastors and leaders there at Hope Church, we are constantly confronted by how I understand what you're doing because I do that. And I understand what you're tempted by because I'm tempted. We need something better. Hebrews 5, uh, 10, 5 through 7 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. The sacrifices can't work. We cannot look into the face of God and live. It says that in Exodus 33:20, when God was asked by Moses to see his face, he said, you can't see my face. Nobody can see me and live. Adam could before the fall, but we can't. It says in Hebrews 12 that Moses trembled. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now, if Moses can't look into the face of God, what hope do you or I have? Then we get into the New Testament. What's being said by verse 5 here when it says, a body you have given me. We get into the New Testament. We find that proud, brash Peter, better than us, but not better than Moses, proud, brash Peter gets to see God face to face. Gets to hug him, gets to hang out, gets to go fishing, gets to eat together. Why? God has come to be with us. It's the miracle of Christmas, a body you have prepared for me. God has come down to us. We can't get to him, but he can get to us. In Utah, we have the Jazz. That's an NBA basketball team, if you're not aware, and they are fantastic. If you weren't sure about that, just ask your Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> Here's a picture of our best player. His name's Donovan Mitchell, and this is him, and unfortunately, he's, he's working your Grizzlies a little bit. Donovan is fantastic, and he's kind of the king of Salt Lake City right now. It's playoffs. We've got a playoff team that's hot, and he's our best player. He's scoring crazy points every game. We love Donovan Mitchell. How hard would it be for you to meet Donovan Mitchell? Not easy. How many calls would it take? How many, how many emails would a little Protestant pastor somewhere in Salt Lake City have to send to be able to hang out with Donovan Mitchell? How many hours would it be before games, after games, just waiting, hoping, trying to meet people, trying to grease some palms to see if I can get to meet Donovan? I actually did get to meet him one time. Poor guy. So he, he came his uh, rookie year. And he was already a sensation by the time he got playing. But rookie year, this organization, this charity organization, <laughs> had roped the Jazz into sending a couple of players for this event. And because he was a freshman, you know, he had to go to this charity event. And poor guy, Hope Church was there. And we collected him up. We got a big picture with him. I said hello and talking to him, invited him to Hope Church. Um, it's been about five years. We haven't seen him yet. Uh, <laughs> But he's got to come. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be with us? Here's another picture we took with him. God, we're cool people, aren't we? <laughs> we're a cool group. He's definitely going to come, right? Now, it's hard for me to get to Donovan. That was the last time I've seen him. It's hard for me to get to Donovan. Can I tell you, though? He can get to me whenever he wants I'll make it as easy as he, as he needs it to be. If he ever wants to hang out with me, that's easy peasy. I'll make it work. The question is, why would he want to? And I'm not fishing for compliments. I'm trying to make a bigger point. 
why would he? God can come be with us. Why would he? You say, okay, well, you know, he's God. He made all of this. Well, we rebelled against him. None of this is his fault. This is us. The fact that he's cleaning it up is his goodness and his mercy towards us. And you might make the argument, well, yeah, but he's still God. He does kind of, you know, you would expect a good God to try and make a way, to try and clean us up again, even after we've sinned like this. I don't know that that's something he ought to do. I don't think you can say he ought to do it. But even if you feel that way, why, after cleaning us up, would he still want us? Because the Bible doesn't just say that he came to make a way for us to be forgiven. It also says that he came to be with us. He wants us. He wants you. It's saying that when you see that face, he has not merely made a way for you to get past the judgmental frown. It's saying that when you see that face, he's smiling at you. Can I tell you, I hope today goes well. I hope you like what all we're doing and get excited about Salt Lake City. But whether you do or whether you don't, I don't care as much as I care about how my wife thinks. And she gives me a little smooch before I go preach. Not always at Hope Church, but you know, big Sunday like this. She'll give me a little smooch before I go preach. And that is better than anything you're going to help me with. I hope that we have a fun relationship, but I'm never going to look at you like I look at her. When I look at her and my eyes get wet and I get this big smile. Now, he's God. He's not goofy. But it does say that he smiles at you. Our marriage is supposed to be a gospel picture of him and the church. He wants you. And that is the answer. Why would he? Is this that good? Does he? Well, we can prove it. It says right here. Look at the next piece. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. You didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first in order to establish the second. He sets aside the shadow in order to establish the substance. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. How do I know that he's smiling? How do I know that he loves us? Because of what he did to show his love. He doesn't just come in order to be with us and hang out with Peter and show him a better way than leave. He came in order to cancel our debt, to pay it fully. He didn't just come to set an example for us. He came to purify us. He didn't just come and fix things and say it is finished. When he left, he said, I go to prepare a place for you because he wants you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him forever. The smile is there. Does that melt your heart? Should he didn't just descend to earth. He descended from earth to death. Lewis talks about it in Miracles. He says, Christ goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to 
get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. How do I know he loves you? He died for you. How do I know that he wants you? He's proved it. Why does that matter? It should be your heart's song. The gospel should be your heart's song. It will be forever. And and if it will be forever, it needs to start being today. And right now, maybe it is. You listen to world-class musicians sing to you about the love of God, and you've listened to me. Thank you. Teach you a little bit about the love of God. And you're at church and you have this sort of lengthy association with it. And you've got maybe emotions that come when you walk in this wonderful building. Maybe right now it is. But what about tomorrow? Will it still be? Is it still your heart's desire? Because that vice is going to start squeezing again. See, what Christ did was he came and he put himself in that vice. It went to squeeze him and it just broke. And he's now made a way for you to get out of that weird sort of self-deluded, proud, self-righteousness hamster wheel. And he's made a way for you to get away from all of these seemingly satisfying pleasures that will destroy you. He's made a way, and now he's done it. So done that it says in 11 through 14, we have all these day after day priests standing and performing religious duties again and again, offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. How done is it? He's seated. He sat down. And at that uh, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It says it's so done that he's seated down and he's got his foot up. He's got his feet waiting in the air for his enemies to be made his footstool, for your fears to be made his footstool, for your despair and anxiety to be made his footstool, for those temptations and trials to be made his footstool. Now, let's pray not for you to be made his footstool. You're his or you're not. There's no other way. So many of us are always going back to offering sacrifices daily. Do you understand why, though? We get a front row seat. We have this cartoon version with the LDS faith. And you see people, and they go back to self-righteousness. They go back to self-indulgence. And you understand why. If I'm self-righteous, I get to stand before God as an equal That's what they teach in the LDS faith. They teach that you are working your way up to goodness, to godness. And that's the appeal for them. When they've told me a picture of their gospel, they said, it's almost like you're in a pit. And God, by his grace, puts a ladder in that pit. It's your job to climb your way out. Or it's like you went to Vegas and ran up a big debt. That's easy enough to do in Vegas. We're not that far away. It happens. And let's say your dad comes and he buys that debt. Now, 
Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say pays off. I said buys. Because their concept is your dad is gracious enough to do that. And he probably won't break your legs, but you still owe him. Get to work. And we recoil because we have the gospel, but do we? Because you and I are tempted to be able to say that we stand before God as his equals. We want to walk into heaven through the front door. We don't want to crawl in asking for grace. But that's what he gives us. He gives us the grace of the gospel. We're tempted to walk away from it in order to have our pride. We're we're tempted to walk away from the pleasure that he is in order to go back to these things that can never satisfy You know, these categories are not really clear when you go to an individual's life. You may be somebody who looks this way on Sunday and acts this way the rest of the week. Yeah, you're going to keep up a good show. You're going to keep up a good sort of appearance. And the only way to deal with that psychologically is to have some kind of release through the rest of the week. And if we really got in, we'd see some dark stuff. What I am asking you to see is the solution that he's given us. It's not try harder or try harder. The solution he's given us is himself. The solution he's given us is to walk away from the attempt to be God or to walk away from the attempt to replace God with these pleasures and instead to just have God. Don't you want him? You can. I don't want him, but I want to want him. Great. This is the gospel message. It says in Hebrews 10, 15 through 18, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after this time, says the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. I'm going to write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where you, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He's saying that outside pressure of the law, that vice-like pressure of the law, he's going to break through Christ. And then because you know him, because you love him, because you felt the love of him, you desire now to please him. He begins to put those laws on your heart and you begin to seek out humility. You begin to seek out self-control, not in order to receive his pleasure, but because you have received his love and his presence. So repent and believe the gospel. And you invited me here. I'm not somebody who can preach to you better than your normal preachers. I'm not somebody who has some special wisdom but I am somebody who can give you a unique opportunity to walk this stuff out. One of the things that we love most about being on the field in Salt Lake City is that we are forced to see, to try and minister to all the time, people who need a grace-based life. And we can try to look (laughs) grace-based, which is what we try to do in our sin, or we can try to be grace-based. We want to invite you to help us with that. See, Hope Church is already planted. You're not really helping with that. You're helping Hope Church plant lots of churches around Salt Lake City. See, if we wait on Mo and Curly to be ready to go and plant churches themselves, we're going to be waiting a minute. I love them. We're going to be waiting a minute. 
And we're going to do that. We're going to equip those guys and watch them over time become that. But in the meantime, we want to take people who do know the gospel, who have received the faith once for all delivered to the saints and don't have all that admixture to have to work through and just teach them Utah. So come do that. Come on a mission trip. That'd be great. But what I really want, I want your soul. (laughs) No, not really. But I do want you to move. I want you to move to Salt Lake City. I want you to buy property and be somebody to create a light of the gospel for people that are caught in this vice or hiding from God's light. Think right now. I mean, maybe it's not Salt Lake City, but it's definitely something. He doesn't save us by our works, but he does save us for, he lays out good works for us to do. And he doesn't need you. Just like you don't need me. But he gives us that opportunity. He allows us the opportunity to be with him forever. Won't you? Be his and go on mission with him. I'll pray that you will. Lord and Heavenly Father, there are so many things that tempt us. And we're ashamed that we're tempted. We're ashamed that we fail, but we're ashamed that we're even tempted to look beyond your loving sacrifice and try to be pleased with anything else. We're ashamed, Lord, that we would be tempted to refuse the offer of adoption in the gospel and try to earn your favor with our good works. Lord, I pray that you would humble us as a people. I pray that you would woo us as your bride. Lord, bring bring us not just to the appearance of conformity, but write your laws on our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that in doing this, your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.